welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax updates to the latest developments on Pillar 2. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is developed by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're recording our podcast from PwC's New York City studio, where I'm excited to have Steve Cohart back on the podcast. Steve is a PwC international tax partner based in New York City and former advisor for the OECD's Center for Tax Policy and Administration. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's great to be back. So, Steve, I'm going to warn listeners, we have some dense material to cover today with respect to the December administrative guidance on Pillar 2. And we received this latest administrative guidance as an early Christmas present at the end of 2023. And before we dive in, how was your holiday break? Did you get some time off? I did. I did. Uh, spent a bit of time with the guidance, but um, you know, also got some time off. We got to get up to Canada and did a little bit of skiing on some artificial snow, but uh, it was still a good time. I understand they finally have gotten snow now that now that the holidays are over. Okay. Well, I'm not a big skier. I didn't realize that. I guess Canada is a. Uh, where were you in Canada specifically? We were in Quebec, just outside of Montreal. Okay. And I well, I did not know that Quebec was a major skiing destination, but learned something every day. Um, I had some nice time off as well. I stayed in St. Louis with all the travel. I prefer not to travel anywhere, so got some good QT with uh, the wife, the the moms, the mother-in-law, and the dogs. So it was some some well-earned time off, I think, for both of us. Okay, um, so let's now dive into the material because we're back to work here, Steve. What is maybe just to set the table the general scope of the December 2023 administrative guidance? Because there's a lot there, but there's also a lot not there. So let's start with what is there. Sure. So at the end of December, right before the Christmas holiday, we received the latest pack of administrative guidance out of the OECD, focused primarily on the transitional country-by-country safe harbor. So as a reminder to folks, there's a simplified reporting framework that allows you potentially for the first three years to rely on country-by-country data to meet certain safe harbors um, in lieu of doing the full Pillar 2 globe calculation on a jurisdiction if you meet one of these safe harbors and have a qualifying country-by-country report. So I think the OECD saw the need to get out the guidance on that ahead of whatever else they might be planning on issuing because of the fact that this is going to affect what folks are booking in Q1, whether or not they think they're going to meet a safe harbor or need to do a full, full-blown full Pillar 2 calculation. So this guidance primarily focused upon topics that are relevant to the transitional country-by-country safe harbor. And yeah, and I, I think a lot of taxpayers are planning to to use the transitional safe harbor. And I think the theory was is that this is should be easier for taxpayers to be able to comply as opposed to having to do the full globe or globy calculations, and that they can use the income or they can use income numbers, for example, from their country by country reports. I will say that after we go through some of this, we'll see that the complexities associated with the transitional safe harbor keep increasing. Um, it does kind of beg the question it, to, to, to some taxpayers, is this really more simplified than actually doing the full globe income calculations? Because I think many taxpayers are going to have to look at their C by C process and a lot may need to, to change as they think about trying to rely on these transitional safe harbors. So we'll caution taxpayers as they listen to this 
podcast to think through what does it mean to them from a process standpoint, because there's a lot more adjustments potentially than I think maybe we initially thought when these transitional safe harbor rules came out. So one of the biggest questions, again, before we uh, um, get into uh, some of the minutia, is will countries actually be able to incorporate this into domestic legislation? Because we have thir- the OECD has said 36 countries are enacting the Pillar 2 rules. Some countries actually haven't enacted them yet, but they can do it retroactively. I think that number may flux. We've already heard that Poland, for example, constitutionally cannot do anything retroactively, and they failed to actually enact anything in 2023 for 2024. So I'll just say 36-ish. But this guidance is coming out in December 2023. A number of countries have already enacted or in the process of enacting is this going to actually be incorporated and effective for 2024, Steve? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the answer is likely to vary based upon the implementing jurisdiction. You know, I think some jurisdictions have shown to be pretty reactive where they're trying to incorporate the OECD guidance as it comes out into their domestic law and might not need to go through the legislative process to do that. Other jurisdictions might need to take it through their legislative process if they've already legislated. And some, as you've noted, can't go retroactive. And we saw the OECD hint at that in this guidance that we'll we'll touch on later, where they've acknowledged specifically that we might see differences in legislation based on whether or not countries are able to go retroactive in their legislation. So I think, you know, especially for U.S. groups where there's not the rules applying at the top down the chain, and then also, you know, really for anybody, because you're going to have QDMTTs applying down the chain, we're going to see differences in how the rules are applied from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And perhaps over time, you know, we'll see more of a common approach as folks catch up and incorporate the guidance, but especially in the early years, going to see some potentially big differences. Right. And so just something for taxpayers to be aware that, you know, this administrative guidance comes out and I think many of us are like, oh, well, this is the law now. Well, no, this is just a framework for implementing jurisdictions that and still need to include within their domestic legislation before it becomes law. So just another challenge for taxpayers trying to comply with these rules and particularly thinking about Q1, which is coming quickly and ultimately year-end provisions, uh, a lot to think about and a lot to pay attention to to understand what those differences are between the various 36-ish implementing countries. All right, so let's actually get in and we're going to kind of go through quickly a few of these with the the hybrid arrangements I think are very interesting and we'll cover that a little bit later in the podcast but let's start with uh, some some guidance that they gave with respect to purchase price accounting what did the AG or administrative guidance tell us on purchase price accounting adjustments sure so we received additional clarity with respect to you know what to do with purchase price accounting adjustments and in short what the guidance tells us is to the extent that that's being pushed down, in your, in your financial statements, and that's how it's being reflected in your CBCR report, you can continue to do so. But just to highlight that if it's left topside and not pushed down, that's where it stay, you know, it gets, it, you know, you, you don't get the benefit of that for the, 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 the CBCR purposes. So, you know, somewhat of an arbitrary distinction that if you've you pushed it down, you get to keep it. And if you, you haven't, you don't necessarily get that benefit. And I think also important to highlight this consistency requirement that essentially for years beginning after December 31st of 2022, so that means your 2023 year, if your calendar year, you need to have taken that approach on your your CBCR report. You need to have pushed it down. So even though I think most folks are thinking, I don't really need a qualified CBC report for the safe harbors until my 24 year. One thing to think about as you're thinking through 23, assuming your calendar year is, you know, how am I handling purchase price adjustments? And is that the approach that I want to be locked into? 
Yeah, and so the concern is is that if you if, if taxpayers do it topside and have not pushed those purchase price adjustments down, then their book income in those local jurisdictions could be higher, right, without those adjustments being pushed down, Correct. which then would dilute the pillar two rate and could potentially cause cause taxpayers to fail the uh, the transitional safe harbor, not be able to to get above the the potential rate. So. Really, an important piece for 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 taxpayers to to consider is how are they doing the accounting for purchase price, and there could be considerable incentive from a pillar two perspective to not do those top side and actually push those down, and then again, this is going to be a constant theme. This is just new process that needs to to, to be put in to help deal with these pillar two rules. Um, there will also something with respect to purchase price accounting on goodwill impairment adjustments. Yep. So to the extent that there's been a reduction in a constituent entity's income attributable to the impairment of goodwill related to transactions entered into after essentially the rules came out November 30, 2021, need to be added back for the routine profits test in all cases. Um, and then in the simplified ETR test, unless it was also backed out of the taxes. So another adjustment that's required to, to meet the, the transitional safe harbor. All right. So let's move to what I'm kind of grouping as consistent use of data. And we'll try to go relatively quickly for this, but there are a whole lot of questions that we had with respect to whether something could be a qualifying financial statement and how that works for the transitional safe harbor. Um, So let's start with the consistent source of data for each constituent entity or permanent establishment. What did the guidance tell us? Sure. So what the guidance told us is, in, in short, for a constituent entity in a qualified CBCR report, you need to use the, the same source of data. So you can't mix and match, for example, taking some numbers out of your consolidated financial statements and others out of local stat. And then what about for entities located in the same tested jurisdiction? Same thing there. It needs to be consistent. So you can't, for one constituent entity in country A, use local stat, and then another in that same jurisdiction, use your consolidated financial statements. Which makes sense. And I think that was what's consistent with kind of how I thought about it, but certainly good to have guidance on that. What about for entities in different jurisdictions? Sure. So what the guidance said here is that a qualified CBC report is determined separately for each tested jurisdiction. So you can mix and match as long as you're consistent within the constituent entity and within the jurisdiction. So you could, for example, use your consolidated financial statements for country A, but then choose to use your local stat for country B, as long as you're consistent with that source of data within the jurisdiction and then within the constituent entity. And this is very taxpayer friendly, right? It just requires, and I view it as a potential opportunity, obviously, in any kind of tax law when they provide elections, so to speak, gives the taxpayers the opportunity to kind of pick which one could potentially have the best result. And that was a a question I think many of us had, can you potentially pick and choose? And they have affirmed that, that, that you can. So um, what about financial statements that may not be required for regulatory purposes and this whole idea of statutory filings, if that, those may not be required in a particular jurisdiction, how do those potentially comply? Sure. So the guidance made it clear that there's no additional requirement that there's, you know, that that level of approval um, that you can still use your your underlying statements. Right. And so in some jurisdictions, if there's not stat reporting legally required, you can still use those uh, use those financial statements. What about for taxpayers that may not file a country-by-country report for some reason? Yeah, so this is a very helpful piece of guidance because I've run into this in practice where there are folks that, for whatever reason, aren't required to file a CBCR report but, you know, nevertheless want to 
access the safe harbors, given that you know, it may not be as much of a compliance simplification as we once thought it was, but can still be a real simplification. And what the guidance told us is that groups that are in scope of Pillar 2 but not required to file a CBC report can still use the data from the qualified financial statements that would have been the source of that qualified CBC report in order to apply the safe harbor. So I think very helpful guidance there. Yeah. Um, and then one, this is a common one. I've mentioned this on a couple of other prior uh, podcasts. Um, what about qualified financial statements if they're not available for a PE? And I think the common example, I mean, this is very common where because it's a permanent establishment, maybe it's very small, you know, some one person, for example, doing sales or marketing, whatever the case may be, where there may not be separate financial statements for that PE. What did the guidance tell us on that? Yeah. So there again, I think helpful in the sense that it confirmed you can use the separate financial statements prepared by the main entity so that the head office of that PE, um, you know, that are prepared for financial reporting, regulatory tax, or even internal management control purposes. Yeah. And I think that's fairly common where, you know, there's not separate financial statements for a PE but that taxpayers now can look to internal management control purposes. Typically, if there's a PE, there's some type of tax return that needs to be filed in the jurisdiction and where there is a permanent establishment. And I think taxpayers maybe have used a myriad of those examples that you mentioned. Um, and so that will be a good standard for taxpayers to be able to use in determining kind of what the, the balance sheet and income statement is for that, that permanent establishment. All right, and so the last one on the consistent use of data, and this is probably really one of the most important and, and a big piece of, of this particular guidance package, transfer pricing adjustments. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is sort of the sleeper at the end of that section because right. you know it says very benignly to the extent that you have you know a post-year-end transfer pricing adjustment. Which most taxpayers have. Exactly. That that can't run through your CBCR report. And, and they acknowledge that even though that would be more accurate, potentially more accurate, it's still going to disqualify your CBC report. So any post-financial statement transfer pricing adjustments need to be taken into account in the year that they're booked, not in the year that they relate to. And you know, many of the taxpayers that I chat with um, you know, have taken an approach of striving towards accuracy and putting those into the, you know, if they're finalized before the CBC report is prepared, putting them through the CBC report in the year that they relate to so that it's more accurate. Right. And this is another really important process change. And I think that you're right, Steve, most taxpayers um, will have included those, those transfer pricing adjustments in their country by country report for the prior year. One of the many challenges taxpayers are going to have that we're going to rely on these transitional safe harbors is they're going to need to accelerate the process for the country by country report. I think because this historically didn't actually uh, create any tax liability and was really just an information report, many taxpayers did their country by country reports later in the subsequent year that that country by country report would be required. So, so taxpayers are going to need to accelerate that process as part of the year end and then not include any of these transfer pricing adjustments because the risk is, is that, or the concern is that if you include those transfer pricing adjustments, you have a disqualifying country by country report and you're out of the transitional safe harbor. Exactly. All right. And so there's a whole other kind of list of different issues kind of outside some of the consistent use of data. Um, let's start with the guidance on intergroup payments. Sure. So we received guidance that said to the extent that you have an intergroup payment, 
Um, you simply look to, um, you know, how that's recorded in the financial statements, and you don't make an adjustment based on the, the tax treatment in one jurisdiction. So I think classic example is if you have something that's debt for book purposes but may have been treated as equity for tax, you don't get to exclude the income in the recipient company because it's treated as a dividend for, for tax purposes in the distributing company. All right. And then what about simplified covered taxes? So I think, you know, here in line with what we were just talking about, these adjustments, they said, you know, simplified covered taxes can include prior year income tax expense, but they highlighted again that anything related to an uncertain tax position, a UTP, is, you know, can't be taken into account. Okay. I think this was, was helpful with, again, with respect to simplified covered taxes. And I think the example is return to provision type, type adjustments. All right. They also provided us with some guidance on uh, taxes associated with permanent establishments. Yep. So essentially what the guidance says there is that you need to allocate the PE tax to the PE jurisdiction, and you can't count it again in the jurisdiction in which the main entity is located. Which seemed pretty intuitive. Agreed. Good, uh, good, to, good to have it in writing and clarified. All right. What about the, the routine profits test? And remind maybe listeners, what is that routine profits test and yep. what guidance do we Yeah. Have? So the routine profits test is, is essentially the test that says you meet the CBCR, transitional CBCR safe harbor, if your PBT in a jurisdiction on your CBCR report is less than your substance-based income exclusion as computed under the, the full pillar two rules. Um, and they also tell you in the routine profits test that if you have a loss for you know, in your PB, your, if you're showing a PBT loss, that you're deemed to meet the routine profits mm-hmm. test. And so, what did the guidance tell give, tell us on on that particular issue? Yeah. So, in the model rules, there's essentially a five percent um, substance based income exclusion on 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 payroll and on um, tangible assets. And then, if you look to Chapter Nine in the transition rules, there are essentially increased rates, you know, starting at 10% for 2023, but nobody has on payroll, but nobody has the rules in 2023. So effectively it's 9.8% in 2024 telling you that, you know, you can use those increased rates in chapter nine for purposes of computing the routine profits test under the transitional CBCR safe harbor, which always seemed like the right answer, but there was, you know, potentially a glitch in the, in the wording of the, of, of the safe harbors document. Yeah, helpful clarification yep. for sure, given that glitch. All right, next one, and I think this is another important one, consolidated revenue threshold, because there are a lot of taxpayers kind of right on the line. What, what did they tell us about the consolidated revenue threshold? And to remind, tax, to remind folks, it's 750 million euro is that initial kind of gate. In two of the last four fiscal years. Yeah. yeah. So they, you know, this is another one that I think reads relatively easily, and then you step back to think about it and you know, can have profound impact for, for folks that are, you know, as you know, right on the line. Because the guidance said, look, it's not as simple as just looking at the revenue on your, consol- you know, your consolidated financial statements, but rather you need to also take into account anything that relates to the inflow of economic benefits arising from delivering or producing goods, rendering services, or other activities that constitute the M&E group's ordinary activities. And then they also went further and said, you need to include realized or unrealized net gains and, and, and you know, income on gains that are separately presented um, um, so like extraordinary or not recurring. Exactly. So it's no longer just as easy as looking at whatever that number is on the revenue line. If you find yourself below the threshold, I think there's another step you now need to take, which is, you know, is there anything outside of the revenue line 
that would be considered revenue under this administrative guidance, and does that potentially tip me into the rules? Right. So anybody who's kind of close to that threshold, I think, really needs to, to pay attention to this rule to figure out if there is something that could tip them, tip them over. And especially folks that, you know, have done the, you know, thought they had done the analysis and said, I'm out, it's probably worth revisiting because there's at least, you know, one taxpayer that I was chatting with that felt pretty comfortable they were outside of the rules and this guidance brings them in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that that might be fairly prevalent. All right. So there were some kind of mechanical questions that the administrative guidance helped answer, specifically with respect to mismatches um, between fiscal years of the UPE and the CE, as well as fiscal years and the tax years of a constituent entity. Let's start with the um, mismatch between fiscal years of the ultimate parent entity and a specific constituent entity. And this is relatively common. Yeah. So I'm always a fan when they tell us that we can follow the accounting treatment since these are, you know, financial accounting based, you know, our, our denominator is the, the financial right. accounts. So they confirmed here that you can follow the approach um, in the consolidated financial accounts of the M&E group. So how it's being taken into account in consolidation um, is essentially what you would follow for purposes of applying the guidance. And what about with the fiscal year is different than the tax year? Yeah. So the same thing there, you can follow the accounting convention used to prepare the consolidated financial statements. So you know, helpful in the sense that at least here we don't have additional adjustments that are required. Right. All right. Another challenge and is for, for taxpayers <clears throat> is with respect to non-material entities. And so to remind folks that there's no materiality threshold for Pillar 2. And obviously for financial accounting purposes, materiality matters. For Pillar 2, it doesn't. And so they, they gave us some additional guidance on non-material constituent entities. What did they tell us? So essentially, it's an annual election to perform these simplified calculations for the safe harbor that allows you to look at um, total revenue for the income of that non-material constituent entity and then taking the income tax accrued in the, the CBC report. So I, I think helpful in the, the sense that you don't need to necessarily get to that granular granular level of detail on the non-material yeah, which I think constituent would be entities. Very challenging for taxpayers to try to get that. So that's helpful, helpful guidance. All right. So a couple more topics that I think we're going to dive a little bit deeper into. So the hybrid arbitrage arrangements and then allocation of CFC taxes. So let's start with the hybrid arbitrage arrangements. This is something that the OECD had signaled that they were planning to, to bring out. Um, and I'll, I'll tell listeners, we, we, we dedicated a lot of time a couple of years ago on the podcast, several years ago, with respect to the European Union's anti-tax avoidance directive, the ATAD-2, that relates to hybrid arrangements. And it really appears that the OECD kind of lifted and shifted that, anti, that hybrid arbitrage arrangement definition and rules into the Pillar 2 rules. But um, maybe we start with, Steve, what is a hybrid arbitrage arrangement? Yeah, so they, they, they... And why do we even have these rules? Right. So the, the guidance says that a hybrid arbitrage arrangement is something that essentially arises from differences in the, the source of financial information or differences in tax treatment. So they gave us three types of hybrid arbitrage arrangement. Um, you know, one is this when you have a deduction, but no corresponding inclusion, as mm -hmm. they've defined, we'll get into, yep. you know, what that means. You know, another type is where you have a duplicate loss, where you have a loss in more than one constituent entity. Um, and then the last one is this duplicate tax recognition arrangement where you have an item of tax recognized in more than one constituent entity that, that, that has an important exception to it that we'll get yeah, to. And maybe set the table. What was the OECD concerned with? And they publicly stated kind of what they were concerned with and why these rules came out. Absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, the OECD was out there publicly since at least the 
you know, it was foreshadowed in the July guidance, and then there have been a, a raft of public comments between the July guidance and what we got in December, that there was a great deal of concern with the fact that you know, there was a perception that taxpayers may be trying to plan into the safe harbor um, using some of these hybrid arbitrage arrangements as they're, as they're drafted here. And there's currently a rule, maybe to remind listeners, in the in the model rules, and then this goes a lot further. But what it, what is that that kind of anti arbitrage type of rule in the general model rules? Absolutely. So in the model rules, in Article three point two point seven, there's a rule that's targeted at shifting income without a corresponding tax effect, and we'll get into what that is in a bit, um, from a low-tax jurisdiction to a high-tax jurisdiction. The concern was that you could potentially achieve jurisdictional, you know, cross-jurisdictional blending, mm -hmm. moving book income from a low-tax jurisdiction where you're paying top-up on it to a high-tax jurisdiction where if you add the book income and don't pay any additional tax, you might still be well over 15% if that's a you know 30% or 25% jurisdiction. Right. And these rules applicable to the transitional safe harbor went significantly further than that. And then the OECD has also indicated in the administrative guidance that they may lift and shift these rules into the model rules and for purposes of the full globe income calculation. But let's unpack these and also want to highlight some, some traps for the unwary because um, the, there are certainly a number. So let's start with uh, deduction non-inclusions. Maybe remind folks what is that and, and how does that apply for purposes of the transitional safe harbor? Sure. Maybe before I even jump into that, just to highlight that there's an interesting cutoff date here for what is, um, you know, so oh, the model point. rules in Article 3.2.7 just apply to all intercompany financing transactions. The transitional CBCR um, hybrid arbitrage arrangement definition says that it's essentially an arrangement entered into or modified, or the accounting treatment has changed after 15 December 2022, which is the date that the safe harbors paper was released. Um, but they importantly noted here that if a jurisdiction can't go retroactive, they could use the 18 December 2023 date. I still have some questions around if a jurisdiction can't go retroactive and they adopt this sometime in 2024, how is going back to December 18th, 2023, any less retroactive than going back to December of 2022? But regardless, they've importantly noted here that we may see some significant differences in how jurisdictions adopt these rules based on their ability to legislate retroactively. And I don't think this is the only place we're going to see that difference. Yeah. And there are, it is very possible that taxpayers have put in this quote unquote hybrid arrangements with no intention of trying to plan um, within these transitional safe harbors. So as we go through these rules, I would caution taxpayers that to take a look at their structures. I mean, frankly, any type of preferred stock, for example, I mean, there are a number of different examples where taxpayers may have done something with no intention. With Certain respect. cost plus arrangements. Yeah, yeah, it's very broad. Very broad. So, and the definition of, you know, modification could potentially be read broadly where, you know, I, I think, you know, it requires a holistic look at, you know, what's my structure and then, you know, have there been any changes to arrangements after 15 December 2022? Yeah, like an interest rate environments have changed. And so you're thinking Absolutely. about returns. There's a lot of things that, that maybe have changed. Okay, great point. Um, so deductions, non-inclusions, what, what are those? Right. So a deduction non-inclusion arrangement is where you have um, an expense or loss in the financial statement of a constituent entity where there's no commensurate increase in the financial statements of the counterparty or... Um, it's not reasonably expected over the life of the arrangement to have a commensurate increase in the taxable income of the, the counterparty. But what's really important to note here is that 
just being included in the taxable income computation of the counterparty is not enough to get you home. Um, because if there's a tax attribute like an NOL or an interest expense carry forward being used in the recipient jurisdiction, and it has a valuation allowance against it, or it would have had a valuation allowance against it, but for this income stream, that doesn't count. Mm -hmm. All right. So what about duplicate loss arrangements? Yeah. So a duplicate loss arrangement is where you have an expense or loss being included in the financial statement of a constituent entity. Um, and then the expense or loss is also being included in the financial statements or a tax deduction in another constituent entity. And again, you know, for U.S. groups out there, think about your disregarded entities right. sitting under the U.S. This can potentially catch plenty of ordinary course arrangements um, because of the broad wording here. Yeah, and Steve, this was a big issue with ATAD2 and these rules, and that if you just have, have a pass-through entity and are getting this deduction in more than one location, it, this can create an issue. And you're absolutely right. I think U.S. taxpayers are particularly susceptible to this because of the flexibility we have with the check-the-box rules. But we also see in a number of other countries, to the extent that you're operating in some form of pass-through, like a partnership, that you can also have this particular issue. And again, there may be no planning, like no intention with respect to trying to plan around or into these transitional safe harbors. So really important that taxpayers take a look at their structures to figure out if they do kind of have an accidental duplicate loss arrangement that could materially impact the transitional safe harbor. And especially because the dual inclusion rule that's supposed to be the escape is drafted very narrowly. It only applies to dual inclusion income in the same constituent entity. So imagine a U.S. group, right, with two DREs in the same jurisdiction, and one has $200 of income and the other has $200 of deduction. Even though that's all being picked up in the U.S. and you're at a net zero, you would lose that $200 deduction for transitional CBC safe harbor purposes in the because of this narrow drafting limiting it to the exact constituent entity. A really important point, and you know, hopefully something that maybe could get fixed or clarified because really no obvious abuse um, in that particular example, but could really be a whipsaw effect for taxpayers if they lose that 200 deduction and uh, to in your example and only have the 200 income inclusion at that disregarded entity that you describe. All right, what about duplicate tax recognition arrangements? So this is where an item of tax is recognized in more than one constituent entity um, as part of its adjusted covered taxes or its simplified taxes for the transitional CBCR ETR test. Um, but what was really important to note here um, is that they did confirm that to the extent, because and maybe just to back up, the model rules allow you to allocate certain taxes cross-border. Right. So you can allocate CFC taxes, taxes on hybrid entities, um, to the basically the underlying source of the, the income when there's a cross-border tax, tax on distributions. And what the guidance said is to the extent that the main entity or the entity in the jurisdiction that's imposing the CFC tax is in the transitional CBC safe harbor, there's no allocation rule in the CBC safe harbor for CFC taxes or, or, or taxes on, on hybrid entities. So that goes into the ETR in the CBCR safe harbor of the, the parent entity or the mm -hmm. entity imposing the CFC regime. But, you know, imagine the, the entity subject to the CFC regime is not in the transitional safe harbor. Under the full model rules, that CFC tax is included in its ETR numerator, assuming it's not a QDMTT jurisdiction. 
And what the guidance said is it won't be a duplicate tax arrangement if what's happening is the parent entity is in the safe harbor and it's included in its covered taxes for the safe harbor and the subsidiary jurisdiction is not in the safe harbor and it's receiving an allocation under the model rules. So helpful clarification there. All right. So you already mentioned, Steve, one of the traps for the unwary on a duplicate loss arrangement. Any others that that you want to highlight um, that the taxpayers should be mindful of as they're looking through their structures and thinking about what adjustments, if any, they need to meet for these transitional safe harbor rules? Sure. And, you know, maybe just to reiterate, you know, the the consequence here of you know, tripping these rules up is losing, you know, your deduction for transitional CBCR safe harbor purposes. And then we can think about if this is followed under the model rules and they take the same approach, um, you lose the deduction, but there's no adjustment on the, the inclusion side. So, you know, another trap for the unwary you can think about is if you have a payment to a jurisdiction without a tax system, because the deduction no inclusion rule requires it be taken into account in taxable income. And imagine, you know, you have a payment from one jurisdiction to another that has no tax system you're potentially picking up that payment at 15% under the model rules and paying top up on that. Um, But at the same time, you're losing your deduction. So potentially, you know, getting getting whipsawed where you're losing the deduction and potentially have 15% top up on that additional income that's now not deductible. And then also- For those keeping track at home, that would be double taxation under the pillar two rules. And then also having the tax in the, the recipient entity. Right. Um, and again, you know, I think I mentioned cost plus arrangements potentially, you know, give rise to some issues because if you have a disregarded entity sitting under the U.S. that's getting a, a, a cost plus, you know, you potentially are taking that deduction into account, um, you know, for both local and U.S. purposes. Um, but the, the 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 stream between the U.S. and the DRE is disregarded. Yeah, that's a really important point, Steve. Is that. You know, I think many folks think when we think about these type of hybrid arrangements, we're thinking about interest expense, we're thinking about maybe royalty expenses, but to your point, cost of goods sold is also an expense that could potentially be included in multi in, in two jurisdictions, for example, in the pass-through that that you mentioned. And so really important to think about all of the expenses on the income statement that potentially could be double deductible, so to speak. And it's not just kind of interest, which I think many people initially focus on. Yeah. And I think a huge, you know, issue is going to be, especially as these rules start to age thinking about this test of whether or not I would have had a valuation allowance up. It might be relatively straightforward if there's not a lot going on in the jurisdiction. Um, but you can imagine it's becoming harder and harder to track as you have multiple arrangements or you know, multiple cross-border income streams, thinking about you know, how do I unwind this and really apply this test? Yeah. And so again, I mean, these are complex, highly complex rules, uh, potentially significant traps for the unwary. And I think really important for taxpayers to think through these rules. What arrangements have they put in since these rules were proposed in the middle of December of 2021, which it's 2024 now. I mean, that is a long window of uh, um, for, for taxpayers to, to kind of go through. And then really important to remember that it is the OECD has said it's their intention to import these into the overall model rules. Um, my hope is, is that they may be able to iron out some of these wrinkles before transposing these into the globe rules and frankly, hopefully maybe fixing some of these for transitional safe harbor to really not go beyond what they were intending to do, which certainly from a policy standpoint is understandable, but I feel like they may have overshot the mark. They definitely painted it with a broad brush and I'll throw one more, you know, potential, you know, application of these rules to an ordinary fact pattern that just highlights how broad a brush this guidance takes. You know, you could read this guidance to say, you know, imagine you have a chain of three constituent entities. 
you know, A, B, and C, and, you know, A makes an equity investment in B, and then B lends to C, could that potentially be a deduction non-inclusion arrangement? Because it says to look at sort of the overall arrangement right. between the entities. And if you were to read this, you know, broadly, um, and again, it's written with a very broad brush, you know, is that deduction in C a deduction non-inclusion because of the fact that, you know, a had already made an equity investment in B. Right. You know, hopefully the rules wouldn't be applied that way, but it's certainly open to interpretation from the, the the drafting of the administrative guidance. Yeah, great point. All right, so let's move to our last topic here, which is the allocation of CFC taxes. And maybe before we dive into the administrative guidance, if you can remind folks what, how do those rules work and. This is particularly important for U.S. taxpayers as they think about guilty inclusions in addition to subpart F, but there are dozens of countries around the globe that have CFC rules and uh, uh, um, taxes that are being paid at the parent company for their foreign subsidiaries. But maybe start with the, what are the general rules, and then we can dive into what the administrative guidance told us. Sure. So the, the model rules allow an allocation of cross-border taxes, including CFC taxes, and this is important when the jurisdiction that gave rise to the CFC charge or receives the allocation doesn't have a, a QDMTT, because the rules are quite clear that if a jurisdiction has a QDMTT, they need to compute that qualified domestic minimum top-up tax first without reference to any cross-border allocation of taxes. But the rules allow you to allocate CFC taxes or branch taxes based on the income that gave rise to that CFC inclusion. There's a special rule for guilty in, in the model rules or in the administrative guidance that says there's a, you know, because of the unique challenge. I mean, it's called a blended CFC tax, but it's, really it's guilty. guilty. <laughs> and what it says is, that, you know, this because it's computed on a blended basis, it's, you know, presents unique challenges for allocation. So we have this two-year transitional rule that allows guilty to be allocated using this simplified allocation key. And the way it works is you need the globe ETR, the effective tax rate is computed under the globe rules for each jurisdiction or th that you're, you're allocating guilty to because the, the allocation key works off of the difference between the threshold rate for low taxation under guilty and the globe jurisdictional ETR, and then also takes into account tested income. So, you know, importantly, you need that globe, you know, until the guidance we got this December, you needed a globe ETR for every jurisdiction, regardless of whether or not you were applying the safe harbors. Right, and and for for those that are for our listeners that are outside the U.S. or maybe less uh, knowledgeable about guilty, I viewed this that that rule as really kind of taxpayer friendly because there are a number of uh, taxpayers that have a guilty inclusion but may not have any CFCs that are paying below the guilty threshold, which is generally 13.125%. And the reason for that is because of the U.S.'s interest expense allocation and just general expense allocation, which can cause taxpayers to still have a guilty inclusion without actually having any low-tax subs. And so for those taxpayers, generally, they can keep the CF those guilty taxes in the U.S. for purposes of the Pillar 2 rules. Uh, but for those taxpayers that have lower tax subsidiaries, those guilty taxes actually get pushed down, uh, which, again, seemed like a, a fairly friendly way to do that, to try to accommodate that really unique guilty system and our foreign tax credit system here in the U.S. 
Um, but so what did the administrative guidance tell us in the allocation of CFC taxes? Yeah. So I think helpful guidance, because I was getting this question a lot from a lot of taxpayers. You know, hey, 90 percent of my jurisdictions are in the transitional CBC safe harbor. But in order to follow the rules and allocate the guilty, I need a full pillar two ETR for every jurisdiction. So great. I get to, you know, fill out a more simplified return, but I still have to do all this work in the background to comply with the rules and allocate my guilty tax. So the administrative guidance clarified that to the extent that a jurisdiction is in um, a safe harbor, you can use the ETR as computed for the safe harbor. So practically what that means is if you're applying the transitional CBCR safe harbor, and it's any one of the three tests, not just the ETR test, they tell you that you can use the ETR as it would have been computed for the transitional CBCR safe harbor ETR test. So I think very helpful in that you don't need to do the full calculation, um, but you still might wind up allocating some guilty to jurisdictions that are in the safe harbor. And that's because, right, we have the de minimis test and also the routine profits test where your ETR might be below the threshold rate for the safe harbor. But, you know, nevertheless, you're in the safe harbor because you meet one of the other two tests. So if taxpayers kind of stepping back, Steve, they like, holy cow, this is just for the transitional safe harbor. This stuff is getting complicated. Um, and it has been complicated. It is complicated. I think, frankly, this guidance is it's helpful to at least give us some clarity. Obviously, there are still a number of questions, particularly related to the hybrid arrangements that maybe they overshot the mark, but maybe there are things to potentially try to manage some of that with uh, with future guidance. Um, have we heard anything from the OECD? Because there are still a whole number of unanswered questions, particularly with respect to the model rules. You know, this particular guidance was very focused on the transitional safe harbor rules. But any indication from the OECD publicly about what we may be expecting over the course of 2024? Absolutely. So, you know, this package alone, right, has told us that we can expect more guidance because we saw that with the hybrid arbitrage arrangements right. where they've said they're considering issuing additional guidance. The OECD has also been out there publicly saying, you know, we'll continuing, continue to issue administrative guidance until we're done, essentially. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but, you know, right. we can expect more administrative guidance over the course of 2024. I think some of the issues that we talked about the last time I was on your podcast, like common control transactions for U.S. gap filers, remain open. Um, so I th and they've been out there publicly talking about allocation of deferred tax as well and potentially making some changes to the rules there. Um, so I, th I think the punchline is we can expect more guidance over the course of 2024. Um, you know, exactly when I think is a wait and see, um, you know, if past performance predicts future results, I think we might be in for a little bit of a wait before yeah. we see some additional meaningful guidance. Um, but hopefully they take that time as well to sort of think through some of the things we were just chatting about around um, ordinary course transactions that can be caught up in these hybrid arbitrage arrangements. It's just one example. Right. So we'll see more guidance over the course of 2024. And then there's this open question of, is that guidance applicable in 2024 in all of the adopting jurisdictions, given these questions about retroactivity? And are we going to see differences in how it's adopted? Yeah. And that, I just think, is going to be a continuous challenge for the duration of these rules, because given the complexity and the open questions, you can imagine we're going to be seeing administrative guidance on this for years to come. And then there may be this delay where certain implementing jurisdictions are not able to be able to incorporate this, this guidance retroactively, again, providing a, a challenge for taxpayers as they're developing and thinking about their calculation engines. How do you incorporate all of these different differences between implementing jurisdictions? So with that, Steve, maybe as our final question, any general advice you have for taxpayers as they're processing this administrative guidance, gearing up for, particularly for the public companies, thinking about Q1 and what they need to do, just any general advice? Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, I think I would start with, you know, don't make any assumptions because I find that usually when we start with an assumption and we start to peel back the onion a little bit, given all of the adjustments that are required for the CBCR safe harbor, there's usually something that's going to require a change in order to be relatively confident that you have a good qualified CBC report. And even if you've already made that assessment, we now have a lot of changes that came out right. of this last round of administrative guidance, so it's worth revisiting it. So I think starting early on your CBC process, you know, making sure you feel as comfortable as you can that you have a qualified CBC report or that you will have a qualified CBC report. Um, but I think just being methodical about you know, what jurisdictions do I expect to meet the safe harbor in, really scrubbing, you know, do I think I have a qualified CBC report? Can I get the data that I need? Can I get the data when I need it? And then thinking about, you know, there are these jurisdictions where I might not meet the safe harbor. How am I going to do the calculation? Right. And then I think lastly, thinking about, okay, where are the rules applying in my group in 2024? And then potentially 2025, whose rules do I need to be concerned with? And what's the status of the adoption of the guidance in each of those countries? Because, right. you know, as we've highlighted, it can be different. Yeah, I think my biggest piece, which is really kind of summarizing for taxpayers, don't take the transitional safe harbor for granted. I Absolutely. think, you know, just looking at knowing that you've got a high statutory rate is not enough because of everything that we described. There are a number of different things that could cause a particular fact pattern to not meet that transitional safe harbor. So, Steve, always some dense material as we're going through this stuff. You did a fantastic job kind of summarizing it. Thank you very much for uh, coming on Cross-Border Tax Talks, and we'll bring you back as we continue to get more administrative guidance because we know it's coming. Thanks again for having me. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Steve Cohart, PwC International Tax Partner based in New York, for joining the podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.